You know, Alan, there are a lot of people, young and old, who do not really know the American story. Well, you know, can we finish this up? Because I'm going to go on TikTok and I just want to watch videos. It's, uh... Yeah, I think that's part of the problem. Hey, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, welcome to another episode of the Sons of History podcast. I am Dustin Bass. I was about to come up with a different name, but go ahead. I'm the talent, Alan Joaquin. Oh, talent. Mm-hmm. Dude, you should like write the word out talent, but T-A-L-A-N-T. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. No. Anyways, all right, ladies and gentlemen, well, we've got a very special guest on the show, Wilfred McClay. I'm excited about this one. I am uh, thrilled that we got him on the show, and I cannot wait to have the conversation with him. But before we do, as we always do... Is that the uh, This Week in History? All right, so my This Week in History actually took place November 18th, 1978. Um... Hmm. Fine. You do that, and yeah, I'm going to talk exactly. about uh, this other one that I see listed. Of course. All right, so my uh, my choice is November 19th, 1863. It is a famous, famous moment in American history that I think everybody will identify once I get that burp out from my apple cider, hot apple cider, which is what I'm having. What did you have? Coffee? I just said coffee. Why didn't you tell me I had apple cider? I would have, uh, because you, one, you brought your own coffee and because you complain creamer. every time I drink be- up all. I your don't creamer. mind you. Dr- yeah, the creamer. Yeah, you drink up all the cream. It's stupid. It's like don't even have coffee. Why don't you just go like to Waterburger and get a milkshake? Yeah. Okay. Then go do that. Well, you know, I'm listen. I'm if I'm gonna drink right, something, I'm gonna. I'm moving yeah. on. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. And that is the great Gettysburg address address given by Abraham Lincoln. And it was relatively shortly after the Battle of Gettysburg that took place the beginning of July. And it's interesting that he gave a two-minute speech. Well, 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 look who decided to show up. He gave a two-minute speech. And the guy who went before him, this was... Edward Everett of Massachusetts, he spoke for two hours. And guess which one we remember most fondly? I never even the heard of. two-minute speech. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think it just goes to show, it's not so much how long you say it, it's what you say. Well, it's kind of uh, reminds me of uh, who went before and after the Beatles in um, 
was that theater the oh god i was gonna say edward r murrow and now you got your dog licking me get out of here ed sullivan show nobody remembers no one knows no. what is up with this dog go on get all right now sit yes sit so that i can tell people my this week in history mm -hmm. which was on november the 18th of 1978 and you know funny thing is i remember it i remember when this came out because it was huge news yeah. absolutely huge news oh, it's yeah. a story of the jim jones massacre the or jonestown massacre i should say um now jim jones the reverend jim jones uh he started off as a pretty decent guy and uh you know as a minister and uh you know he ministered to uh, a lot of poor people and over over time he kind of uh got heavily involved in some of the anti-racist movement which which was a good thing at the time uh, i mean it still is but uh, at the time it wasn't very um you know correct for many people to do that but he did it and uh, he was very gutsy for it but during that time he kind of lost a little bit of his uh you know faith and he he ended up becoming an atheist believe it or not but he saw himself as a reincarnation of jesus christ and vladimir lenin he became a marxist an actual marxist so the combination of jesus and vladimir well you know what's funny is is that a lot of people say jesus was a socialist which is a pretty stupid comment because yeah. uh, i don't think it's just so you know when yeah. you think of like the talents but anyway that, that's a that's, that's a, another anyway okay so what happened was is that he he moved his church to san francisco and then eventually he moved his church to the south american country of uh, guiana and uh you know he he created his own little town on the, in the very northern part of the country um and you know they called it the People's Temple Agricultural Project, a.k.a. Jonestown, named after him, of course. Um, there were about a thousand followers, um, and, but it wasn't quite the paradise people thought it was. Um, you know, it was kind of like a modern-day type of slavery. Now, there was a congressman by the name of Leo Ryan. A lot of his people came from, you know, that part of California um, uh, that were living in Jonestown, so... He kept hearing about complaints that were going on uh, from family members, people who defected, um, you know, family members of those that were still there. So he uh, formed a little delegation of, uh, of his staff, uh, NBC News. Uh, you had uh, reporters. Um, it was like the San Francisco Chronicle, Washington Examiner, Examiner Washington Post. Uh, they flew down to see what was really going on in Jonestown. Um, now, at the beginning, he only allowed, you know, just a few people, but then he allowed the reporters in. Um, they, flew, they flew to an airstrip uh, about six miles from there um, and then tractor-trailer into the jungle. A um, few people, like I said, a few people were able to go in there. Um, and then Jim Jones was like, okay, he'll let the reporters in. So the reporters interviewed him, and there were people that were passing messages to the reporters trying to get it to Congressman Ryan, get me the hell out of here. So um, so there were about 15 people who said that they wanted to leave. Jim Jones was like, if you want to leave, go, because you're not one of us anyway. So uh, they piled into a tractor trailer, and, um, or a tractor rather, and, and went back through the jungle to the airstrip. Now, Jim Jones, what he did was he allowed some of his little red brigades, which was kind of um, like the Praetorian Guard, uh, they followed them out there. There were two planes waiting for them on the airstrip. And as they were about to uh, get on the planes, uh, one of the 15 defectors pulled out a gun and just started shooting everybody. And 
right around that time, there was, you know, a tractor tra- the tractor showed up, and members of the Red Brigades just jumped out and just started shooting everybody also. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an NBC News cameraman who caught the beginning uh, stages of the, of, uh, the shooting. It's, the, the video still exists. Yeah. But, but there were, um, yeah, five, five members were, were uh, killed and quite a few injuries, but everybody just scattered into the uh, jungle. Now, one of the planes did manage to take off, and they flew to Georgetown. So when those Red Brigades members went back and told Jim Jones what, what had happened, okay. hmm? yeah, when they when they went back and told them what had happened, but is that okay? So they they went to to where did they go? Georgetown. The the survivors. There were a couple of survivors that because there were two planes that the that the, uh, uh, Ryan's delegation. Um, but they they went to Georgetown. Yeah, they flew. They took off. They were able to. Like, they were able to escape. There were two planes. Was that George Jones. George. No, there was Georgetown, which was the capital of Guyana, and then there's Jonestown. Georgetown. George Jones. Huh? George, George Jones. Jones. Oh, funny. Yeah. Too soon. It's too soon to make jokes about that. So no, they flew to the capital of Guyana, Georgetown. They they managed to escape. So so the Red Brigades went back, told Jim Jones what happened. That mm-hmm. you know some of the members escaped. And you know, Jim was like, "Okay, we're we're over it. it it's over for us." Um, so what they did was they it wasn't Kool Aid. A lot of people think it was Kool Aid, but it was a grape flavor aid. Uh, they got like a big bucket of uh, or big barrel of it, and they put Valium and cyanide. Um, they they put it in with the flavor aid, and then they you know, Jim Jones called everyone to the pavilion for an assembly. And told them what had happened, that, you know, there were a lot of deaths, uh, people were killed, now they're going to come after us, it's over for us, so we're going to do a revolutionary suicide. Now, there's a 45-minute audio tape of this where people were arguing, but um, lines were formed, uh, armed guards surrounded the crowd, and everybody started either injecting the flavor aid or they drank it. Um, about 900, some 909 people died. Um, Mass suicide. It was like the worst suicide uh, murders uh, up until 9-11. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Jim Jones, he, uh, he ate a bullet, killed, yeah. killed himself with a gun, and uh, that's where, this, that's where drinking the cool... George Jones cl- actually yeah. came in. Yeah, what, you know, you, you can't he make fun of... He loving yeah. her but this is where the uh, This is where the, the, the saying, drinking the Kool-Aid. Um, yeah. Yeah. You don't so want to do it. it. Yeah, it was... Uh, you know, All right. Kind of well, a, kind thanks, of man. Thing, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I think you said that one in record time too. Did I? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, it's a very uplifting we always story. <laughs> always. But yeah, in like I said, time. I remember when this happened. It yeah. Was like well, a, wow. It feels like I've relived it. Yeah. So, well. Thanks. Anytime. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for uh, your rendition of <laughs> the great Jim Jones. Hey, more people died you... in the Civil War, man. So yeah, don't... Why don't Why don't you? Take the Jim Jones poster out of your room, huh? Because everything that you just said makes it seem like you don't really care and that this is all a joke to you. People died. You know, all right. You, that's, you're, uh, you're, you're, that's this week in history. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, we've got Wilfred McClay. He's going to be joining us and just a little rundown of who he is. He is the former G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma and the director of the Center for the History of Liberty. He is now a member of the U.S. Commission on the Semi-Quincentennial. 
which has been uh, charged with planning the celebration of the nation's 250th birthday in 2026. Uh, hopefully we make it that long with what's going on in this country. Uh, he is now the Victor Davis Hanson Chair in Classical History and Western Civilization over at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. And he is the author. You do this. You're so good at it. He is the author of the book, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story. And that is one of the things that we're going to be talking about with him. And so without further ado, we've got Wilfred McClay, who has told me, hey, just call me Bill or don't call me like doctor. Don't, you know, let's not get all. He's a little bit like Dr. Stephen Harden. He's like, just call me Stephen, you know. So we've got Bill on the line. Bill, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's Saturday night here in a beautiful uh, cosmopolitan Hillsdale, Michigan. And, um, you know, I'm watching the snowfall. Well, beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, it's a Snow. little chilly. Yeah. It's a little chilly down here in Houston, but not anywhere near that, thank God. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm a recent uh, uh, immigrant to the, these parts. And uh, although I'm sort of a Midwesterner by birth, I grew I, I in Illinois and spent most of my life on the coast. And now I'm back in the Midwest here. Uh, so I'm happy to do it. Well, there you go. Yeah, uh, I know we're big big fans of uh, Hillsdale College and mm. everything that they're doing. So it's pretty awesome that you're you're over there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I get a newsletter from them all the time. Yeah, the Imprimis. Yeah, yeah. You and four million other, almost five million now. Yeah, it's people. growing. It's amazing the reach of it. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Uh, and speaking of Hillsdale College, uh, your book Land of Hope, which we're wanting to discuss among other things. Um, you did one of the online courses uh, for that, fantastically uh, done, uh, I have to say. And if, if ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't checked that out, you need to go uh, check out Hillsdale uh, College. I think it's hillsdale.edu, and then check out their online courses. Uh, and go with they them. are free. They're they free. Are free. Absolutely free. And uh, the only thing you have to deal with is Hillsdale's incessant fundraising, please. Uh, but... But, you know, I think you can actually, you know, uh, uh, unsubscribe to that. So, uh, but yeah, the courses are free. And and they have lots of, I, I you know, other courses, courses on the, the Bible. Victor Davis Hanson has a fantastic course about Second World War. Second World War is based on his book, that final. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, and look, I can't take credit for uh, everything about it. You know, the, the, a lot of the art, the, the way it's put together, um, the, obviously the editing, I didn't do. I just I just showed up and um, it's like in the ad business they they refer to the people who do the you know who appear on the screen as the talent. So I was the talent, and but the really talented people were the guys, uh, Kyle Mernon and others, and and, and these who uh, and, and 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 freelancers too they hired uh, really wonderful people so uh, um it was a team effort it really was well that's well, funny because i'll what, take all the credit you know I, yeah that's what alan does he yeah. calls himself the talent takes the credit and i do all the work so yeah, yeah I, I will admit he does do all the work but you know so we yeah we kind of need each other we're like you know the shark and that thing that hangs on the shark whatever that thing is called 
I have uh, I have I no idea. names of those things. Yeah, I have no <laughs> idea what you're talking about. Have you just seen photos of? Have you just seen a video of the shark and you got the thing that's attached to the shark? You haven't seen? Oh my God! Seriously, you haven't seen? You talking about it? the tracker? I don't know what they're called. No, there's those little animals that get on the. They, oh yeah, that's. I don't know what they're called. I'm a historian. Parasites or yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know parasites. Parasite fish. So they're just uh, eating off their their back. Yeah, that's what you're doing. You're yeah, you're living off my. <laughs> living the life. Yeah, living the life. Exactly. I'm uh, just guiding the ship. So, um, Bill, we want to talk about uh, your book, Land of Hope. It came out in 2019. Now, in the Pretty much in the very beginning. Thank you, opening. Alan. Yeah, good man. He loves it. He, he, this is hey. When we say talent, yeah, this is what we're talking about. He used to be on uh, Will of Fortune, uh, and then Vanna White she showed up, and so he was. Uh, yeah, he was booted. Hard off. to compete with yeah. Vanna White. It's, it's tough. It's yeah, they, they called me a lot. By the way, you know, uh, apropos of Wheel of Fortune, you know who is the chairman of the board at Hillsdale College? Yeah. Um, yeah, the guy who is the the main guy, Pat Sajak. Sajak. Pat yeah, Sajak. Yeah, I, I did not. And know he's that. great. He's really, really terrific. I mean, it is totally tuned into uh, the issues in higher education and what's really special about Hillsdale. I mean, we're lucky to have him. There's a there's a story that see we're about two hours from the Detroit airport, which is a bit of a hike, and uh, there is a Hillsdale airport. And I'm told that they lengthened the runway so that Pat Sajak's jet could <laughs> land there. I don't know that that's I probably shouldn't be saying, but uh, uh, it would be it'd be worthwhile. He's that good, worthwhile to do that. Well, yeah, I think Pat'll. I think he'll forgive you. Um, and I guess you know that might be a good idea to pick the next uh, online course for Hillsdale College is just spin the wheel, whichever it lands on. Well, looks like we're doing. Uh, this one, Frederick Douglass. I don't know. Anyways, I'll, I can give you off the air some recommendations on that because there's a, there's a there's a couple of them just come out that I think one guy in particular I think would be an absolutely hoot for you to, to interview. Oh, that'd be great. But now it's my turn to be a hoot. So exactly. Let's, let's, uh, yeah, and we're we're starting off uh, with a couple of hoots. Hey, uh, so the beginning of your book, it starts off and you you pose the question. Um, why the need for this book, referencing Land of Hope. And your answer more or less seems to revolve around citizenship. I got to ask, what is it about your history textbook, Land of Hope, that what is it about that book that it gets right? And what is it about many of the other textbooks and for history that it that gets wrong? The things that it gets wrong. Well, I think it's mostly that I've been very selective you know, I, I this is a what I four hundred page book um, uh, that is covers all of, all of American history, although not the very recent American history, and that was a deliberate decision on my part. But it, but still, there's a lot of material to cover, and uh, I really wrote it to be a, a kind of textbook for my ideal reader. You know, you always think of your ideal reader when you're writing, and, and my ideal reader was a Junior in high school, a guy, preferably, but it doesn't have to be a guy, but uh, who's preparing to take AP U.S. history and needs something that's going to pull it all together. Um, and uh, 
I don't know that it's, it, it, has, it hasn't yet. It's found, the book has found an audience. Um, it's sold, you know, just unbelievable uh, for me anyway. I mean, I'm a college professor. I'm used to having books sell, you know, 5,000 copies. It's a great triumph. So um, uh, we've sold a lot more than that. But, you know, the interesting thing is that most of the readers up to now have been not in schools, but adults, people your age um, and, uh, and older. Uh, I, you know, I'd say anybody 30, 35 and up. I, I, that, that's, that's kind of been my readership so far. That's really curious. And why is that? I, th I think part of it is that people have a real hunger for something like they have a hunger for someone who has some knowledge, some authority, um, saying, um, giving an account of the country that, so that it's saying for in the first place, you know, we, and we, 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 we've got some flaws, but all in all, it's a pretty great story. And, uh, and here it is. Um, so I, if I had written a sort of Valentine to America, I don't, don't want that. They don't want sugar coated. But the problem with the current textbooks is that they are <laughs> there's no no sweetness at all, uh, and um, and they're also too crowded with. I think that's as much as uh, as the the other that they're they're not well written because they're sort of assembled to have a little bit of everything in there. Um, uh, but but anyway, to get back to your question, it, it, what 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 do I get right, and what does it have to do with citizenship? think I made the decision to political history of the country. That's a kind of unusual choice these days for historians to make because professional historians, at least for the last 30, 40 years, have been much more concerned with social history, with yeah, anything but political history and or constitutional history or diplomatic history. Those are all and military history, those four fields, maybe intellectual, kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, what does a young person need to know about his or her country to kind of sally forth into the world and, uh, and have a sense to be an American citizen? That was a question I always asked myself. So, for example, there's a lot of attention paid to the origins of the Constitution. Not just the Constitution itself, but to um, the, the the kinds of historical is within the, the prehistory of America, you know, history of England in the 17th century and so on. That all of these things that help make sense of why the Constitution is structured and what, um, as a citizen, you need to know about. Um, so uh, that's kind of. I think has made my book a little bit different. It's much more sort of slimmed down. Uh, there's a lot of detail that drops out. That's very hard, especially when it's a subject you know. And there are lots of areas of American history I don't know much about, but there are areas I didn't know a lot about. And you probably couldn't tell from the book which is which because I went through this process of, you know, it's just kind of triage, throwing out anything I thought didn't contribute to sort of fundamental basic comprehension. Uh, and one other thing um, is that I really do think we have a, a story. There's an American story. It isn't 
we don't all agree on all the details of it. Um, but there is a great American story. And I think that is lost in the, you know, modern day textbooks. They're, they're just this profusion of detail that um, are really meant to kind of try to keep up with the combination of the, you know, what people in the profession are studying and, and, uh, and, and what the textbook committees um, and the interest groups that affect textbook committees, Texas being this example of that, are demanding. So it, these things aren't actually written by people. It, it's kind of horrifying. I, I have a friend who used to work for Pearson, and she is threatening to write an article, I wish she would, about exactly what what happens in the making of a textbook, because she saw it and participated in it's makes sausage look like uh, you know uh, purity itself by comparison sa sausage making. So um, I this is a book one person wrote it. Yeah, uh, you know I, I I wrote it at night. Didn't even take a leave of absence or anything like that. No research assistance. I just wrote it. So it does represent, for better or worse, one person's view. Uh, but I I also think that a lot of people appreciate. I appreciate I don't try to pretend that I'm God and that I, and, and that, that I'm presenting as a sort of God's eye view of American history. Um, so I, I I think all of these things are factors in why the book has been uh, well received, uh, much better than I expected. I expected a rockier reception than I've got. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure why that is, but uh, um, I'm I'm glad of it. It's it's interesting because I was thinking the same word that that you said is there is a hunger, uh, there is a hunger for his the retelling of the American story in its proper context and its broad proper context that sort of ties a lot of things together. And, and I know that we had mentioned that before we get started recording, um, and I think that that's. Something that that happened now, you know, it's interesting. Victor Davis Hanson has mentioned that a number of times how, um, you know, kids are in school. They don't like history class, but now you've got history books coming out all of the time. And it's one of the the biggest sellers as far as um, as far as genres go for books. And I think that that is an <clears throat> indicative of of why people our age and older are interested in, in your book and books like it. But I also think it's an indictment on the public or, or the education system, which leads actually perfectly to my next question is over the past number of years. It's funny when we were talking about this, this book came out in 2019 and a whole hell of a lot has taken place since 2019. Um, and it seems that we are sort of the past number of years has shown the fruits of Poor history and civics education, um, primarily, especially in public education. Um, what have you noticed that the education system is getting wrong about teaching history and civics? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that um, it, it's partly it, it it's it doesn't uh, uh, there's not a sense of perspective. Um, that is, I think it's really important for kids to learn about 
slavery, about uh, you know, slavery and indentured servitude, the whole um, and, and and racism and its relationship to those things, and and uh, um, it it's uh, I think it's really important for them to look at to, to be aware of the of the negative in American history. But you know what we really don't seem to have is a perspective on it. I I can't tell you how many, mostly people my age, um, when I told when I when I decided to take this on and I told people about it, first thing they would ask me, well, how you how are you going to deal with Indian removal? How are you going to deal with that aspect of slavery? And <laughs> well, you know, these are these are important things, but um, it, it's not the, it's not the totality. It's really uh, it, it's really uh, I don't want to say it's a footnote, but it's not the central story. Um, and uh, the central story is not being told in, in, in the parts of it, including the negative parts that need to be rendered. Are not they're not being integrated into the whole in a way that makes any sense. So, a lot of kids are just uh, learning that there are three important things about history: uh, you know, uh, um, slavery, Indian removal, and Japanese internment camps, and that's all they know about. And um, they don't know. My students, even at OU, where I had very good students, undergraduate students, that uh, they are shocked when I say, for example, that uh, slavery has been more the rule than the exception in human societies over the course of, of what we of the history where we have records, and uh, um, they're shocked. They're shocked. They they really think the United States is the only nation in human history that's uh they may have some vague notion the romans had slaves but that was different you know they were maybe captured in battle and they weren't really slaves um you know they're there and then the thing that really astonishes them is when you say well um, slavery sla slavery has not been abolished slavery is thriving right now in their you know the by the UN's count, which probably undercounts it, 23 million enslaved people in the world, in Africa and Asia, various other places. And you, know, you could even count you know, trafficked individuals in the West. Part of that. You could count the Uyghurs and other enslaved Chinese who are providing much of the labor for our cornucopia of consumer goods that are now sitting off the long the coast of Long Beach and, and Los Angeles Harbor. But, uh, um, you know, the, for us to obsess about one of the things that's happened since the book was published, the 1619 Project, for us to obsess about what may or may not have happened and try to construct a narrative of that as the founding, the actual founding of America, which is an absurd idea it is such a misallocation of our psychological energy um we we really and i'm a historian i believe in the importance of the past but good lord i think part of you know understanding america and appreciating america is knowing being able to answer the, the compared to what question um to compare america to a perfect paragon standard of virtue um uh that that is unexcelled um there is no slavery no oppression no 
structural inequalities, blah, blah, blah. Um, we're going to fall short. But if you compare um, things like receptivity to immigration uh, and any number of other standards of, of just fundamental freedoms, we, we score very high. Uh, and this is one reason why immigrants um, are such, uh, by and large, such boosters of America, because they know, I just had lunch yesterday with a guy who's uh, uh, joined the faculty here, who's uh, really a refugee uh, from Venezuela. And uh, he, is, he is utterly uh, fed up with uh, the criticisms of America that he hears from people. Uh, not so much around here, but but he was in Colombia for a number of years in New York, and um, he says people just don't—they have no idea, they have no idea what it was like to live under Chavez and Maduro, and um, he's come to this country, you know, flat broke, wife doesn't speak English, and yet you know he—he's a Yankee Doodle Dandy, <laughs> he really is. He's a—he is a aspiring in talking about what's great about the country. And that that's, you know, why do so many people want to come here, even now, even with all of our despicable racism and so on that, that uh, the world attributes to us? And they know better. They know this is still a land of hope. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, uh, I fear it's sounding like a cornball when I say these things, but I think... Um, Again, when you talk to people who come from terrible situations in today's world and for whom uh, this country represents a real asylum, a real chance to start their lives over, it doesn't seem so corny. Uh, and it seems that something that we are being rather narcissistic and solipsistic to fail to appreciate what we are and what we represent in a, in a positive way to so much of the world. You know, it's uh, it's funny that you say that about the immigrants being the boosters of this uh, of this country, because some of the most fiercest patriotic people that I have met are people who came from Cuba or Haiti, Venezuela, um, and the worst people that I've had to deal with are those that grew up in this country who are complaining because their iPhone isn't as fast as it should be, or you know, they, I mean, they, they nothing but complaints, and you know, like we were talking about the slave. You were talking about the slavery issue, um, where you know I would mention that China, India, and those regions had far more slavery than the United States ever did, and immediately being accused of a white supremacist. Where'd you get your information from, a white supremacist? Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, I got it from Dr. Thomas Sowell, who is an African American. So. Yeah. Kind of, I was so then, close to being like you know the Larry Elder thing. It's such yeah, a yeah. Scam. So it, it yeah. it's it's yeah. ridiculous. But so that, that leads no, me it, 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 and you know a tiny percentage um, uh, of the you know African um, you know the slave trade to North America or well to the Western Hemisphere I should say. Um, a, only a tiny percentage. I think it's in the single digits. I don't. I, I actually think it's. Three percent, but I don't quote beyond that. I, but it's in the single single digits uh, percentage that came to what became the United States. 
huge percentage of it went to the Sugar Islands and to Brazil, where you had a very high rate of mortality in both of those areas. Um, and uh, in the United States, the conditions were so relatively good that, um, they, you know, after 1808, when the slave trade was abolished, they didn't need it. They, they had natural um, reproduction, uh, natural growth African uh, slave population, and uh, and look, I mean that's a hard thing to say in in a public setting. Well, the slavery in America was so much better. I mean, it's slavery still, and it was brutal in many many places. Um, uh, and tremendous variety. And to the people who've actually studied it, always emphasizes that slavery is so different in different places and different time periods and. But, but that raw number of how many of the, the West Africans who came to the Western Hemisphere um, at, went to, to North America, to what became the United States, that really does tell you something uh, important that never gets talked about, except you know, people who study Brazilian history know about it. Uh, yes, and, and, and slavery in the, the Arab world, you know, you don't talk about that either. It's it's come uh, because we actually hold ourselves to such a high moral standard, um, and, are, and are quite willing to and, and see it as a kind of moral requirement to engage in self. We often don't even get past criticizing ourselves to look at how we compare uh, to other nations of the world, um, and uh, uh, that that's. Um, I, I often felt that if you do it to teach American history course, starting with reading uh, the Gulag Archipelago <laughs> or something like that, that would uh, really, uh, immerse students in the, in the realization of what, what, what uh, and what a brutal business human history has been for the most part. I mean, we, we all enjoy reading about it, but we don't enjoy the idea of Living in a society where human sacrifice is practiced, this is not um, not not uh, this is the world that Columbus came to replace, <laughs> um, and he was brutal at times in his own way. That's part of the record, but that compared to what question is uh, something I ask all the time. You know, when when I students are kind of getting the sense that they're being they're engaging in historical thinking and critical thinking when they're comparing the United States to an abstract standard of moral perfection. And I always want to say, okay, tell me, tell me another society in which women had a, a better status in the 1830s than they did in the United States. And they don't have the slightest idea. They're not really interested in knowing. They're, they're interested in having a kind of cudgel to, to be their country with. This is the part I don't completely understand. Is I don't know why, uh, why have we've come to a place where the hatred, if that's not too strong a word, of of our own is almost treated as a moral imperative. Um, I certainly see it in the university world that I live in. That the you know the the idea of writing anything that's sort of affirmative of America is almost beyond the pale. Um, uh, and uh, how has that happened? 
Why? What's that all about? Why is this sort of self-loathing or a projection onto others of of uh, guilt or whatever? Why has this happened? I I wish I understood it better, um, but I don't. Well, do you think that the uh, the retelling of uh, America's story is focused so heavily on the negative that you know Americans are just going to you know view it negatively? And if so. You know, how do we correct this? How, as a citizen, can we turn the tide? Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to that in a global, in a, in a big picture sort of way. I've just tried to do my little bit. In, in um, uh, Well, let me tell you the story of how Land of Hope came to be, and, and, and that might illuminate your question, the answer to your question a little bit. It, this started in 2014. Um the College Board, which is the organization that administers advanced placement testing, um, came out with a new set of, of guidelines of the AP U.S. History Test, and which is kind of the gold standard in uh, in, in the educational world of, of uh, standardized testing. Um, and they had radically changed what had always been a, a down-the-middle kind of test reliably neutral. Um, and they they emphasized the slave trade. They emphasized the sort of um, development of Atlantic world economy around the economics of slavery and the triangle trade and so on. Um, they emphasized, they, they de-emphasized the founding. There, was, there wasn't a unit on the constitution or on the ratification debates of the constitution. There wasn't even a mention in the document of George Washington, James Madison. Uh, you know, I could go on, but you get the idea. Scrubbing that was administered. And um, there's a lot of other things I could say about what the college, none of which are good, but um, a group of us, and I actually was the, the Thomas Jefferson of the group, and I wrote a, a, an open letter to the college. We uh, put out, and you can still see it on the uh, website of the National Association of Scholars, uh, a letter sort of pleading with the College Board to uh, change back to the earlier standards. They never acknowledged the letter. They never even acknowledged it, but they did move their standards back for the most part. And uh, a lot of people, you know, Dan Henninger at the Wall Street Journal wrote a great column saying, well, okay, you won, now shut up. Uh, not to me, but to conservatives uh, who were complaining. Well, here's the problem. All the textbooks, you know, the, there are three major textbooks, publishers, they all had already revised their textbooks in light of the new standard. Um, so people started in, 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 you know, the circles of Spain historians. We, we generally meet in a phone booth, but <laughs> not that. Not that um, we started talking about what, you know, what, what are we going to do? And, and, and a couple of people said, well, you know, we really need to have an alternative textbook. And I said, you know, that's right. Um, I hope you find somebody to do it. Uh, and, um, and then as people started asking me if I was interested, because uh, there's just no, there's no, reward within the historical profession for doing something like this. 
and I knew um, I would pay a price professionally. But finally, uh, I was talked into doing it. And once I got into it, I was I couldn't stop because I loved it. I loved what I was doing. Something I knew needed. Um, so that's how it happened. It really was created as a um, counter to, and that's why I said I thought of it as a book that someone who was doing the AP test, preparing for the AP test, as a pull it all together kind of. Um, uh, but it's it's sort of taken on a life of its own, uh, in 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 uh, in completely independent. Of it. Uh, but I think it, it, it's things like the AP test reflect, and the and the changes of it. You should see the European history test. They they've made similar changes, and there was no comparable outcry. And so, as far as I know, it's still going along as it was. It's, um, it's pretty dreadful. It 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 doesn't um, it doesn't take into account the distinctives of the West of the Western Western civilization. It's, it's uh, you know focuses on on negative a lot of negatives. It's not completely negative, but uh, I, I'd say it's more negative. Um, something I I want to share with you too is that. Um, Thinking about when I talk about good citizens and all that, um, I didn't think a lot about this when I was writing it because actually the information had not become available. I've been haunted by um, the statistics that I've seen about um, youth suicide. You've probably seen some too. That um, there's there's a, a statistic in it. Um, young people between the age, I think, of 14 and 25 or something like that, um, the, the rate of suicide has increased 60% in the last 10 years. Um, and look, I don't think they're doing it because they're, they're having to read horrible textbooks. <laughs> but I do think that it's a contributing fact to a kind of demoralization of a whole generation. I see, I have kids, um, you know, they don't experience this, but I see it a lot. I see uh, aim over, you know, one's, uh, one's country, one's race, one's whatever, one's privilege, that this is the, and I'm not, and again, I'm not saying people are committing suicide just for that reason, but what I am saying is that the morale of the millennials and the generation behind them, I guess they're with the Zoomers or whatever they're called, is very low. Uh, and um, uh, I, I can't help but think that the notion that they live in a, in a country that um, rests on the, on the basis of ill-gotten wealth in which the opportunities of the past are no longer available to them, um, that this is a contributing factor. I think it has an effect on the, your soul if you grow up in a society where you're taught that you live under a regime that is unworthy. So, um, and I, you know, if I believed that was the truth, I would have to either say it or shut up 
But I don't believe it's the truth. I absolutely don't believe it's the truth. And so it's incumbent upon me to try to do something. Uh, and I have to say, it's there are times when I go to bed with a smile on my face because I've gotten three emails from total strangers who said, I just read your book and I love so, you know, and I get this all the time. I've never had this for anything else that I've written. And uh, it's kind of fun, <laughs> but it's very gratifying. Uh, I feel like I'm doing some, some good in the world. Well, how, let me ask you, how do you respond to a critic of America or even your book? Uh, because they'll sit and say, well, you know, our founding fathers, our our uh, founding documents like the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, uh, our Republican form of government. What's the big deal? Why is that so special? Because, you know, we have democracies all over the world right now, and people are happier in Nordic countries. I mean, what's... Uh... Yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know that that's true. Talking about suicide rates in Sweden and Norway led the world. I don't know that's no longer true. And, and those are, uh, particularly Sweden, a very unhappy place right now because they uh, unwisely um, accepted a lot of immigration that of, of people that they're finding to be completely unassimilable. Um, that's one thing about us. You look at the French, you look at uh, even the British, uh, and certainly the Scandinavians, any number of other countries, the Germans with their Turkish population, we we do a, a, an amazing job in assimilation. Uh, we're not doing as well as we used to because we have policies that are opposed to assimilation. We have, uh, um, you know, a multilingual and multicultural kind of education in the schools that, that we no longer accept the idea that Americanization is a noble thing because it, it puts people in a position where they can flourish in this country. They know the language. They know um, the way that um, it, it uh, and yet, you know, I, I uh, among the most, we were talking about immigrant patriots. Um, I always find when I'm in New York that I manage to get cab drivers who are real Yankee doodle dandies, you know, even though they're from uh, you know, Eritrea or, or or Pakistan or, or uh, and they understand how the economy works. They don't really get the system. But um, as cab drivers in New York, which is an you know, incredibly you know stressful, competitive business, they they get it and they love it and they like they 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 don't uh, they they don't like De Blasio, but they don't they they love the country. Um, and uh, so I think people can pick it up. We should be teaching our young people to 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 really appropriate uh, the, the the good things about our past. I'm getting back to the Nordic because I do think that that there's a there's an apples and oranges aspect to the comparison. Um, it, we we have to. Uh, have an economy that can support the defense of much of the rest of the world. Uh, Western Europe, they don't pay for their own defense. Um, and um, we 
<laughs> curiously, they, 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 they're very critical of us, but when we start talking about pulling our troops out of Germany, oh my goodness, no heavens. But we, we are, um, we, we have an economy that's supporting a lot of the world beyond ourselves. Um, we, and we have bailed out Europe um, twice <laughs> in the last century. Um, we didn't, you know, we didn't do so well toward the end of that century. But, uh, uh, but even Vietnam, arguably, is an instance in which the United States came into the vacuum the French had left um, by their imperial. Um, we've done just we've done things for the rest of the Western world, and not just the Western. That um, you can't find any analog in what they've done for us or for anybody else. Um, now uh, it may be uh, that living in Switzerland, which is, is it's my idea of a, a really nice country with great landscape, and uh, but it may be, be nice to live in Switzerland. There's many things I admire: I admire the Canton system, I admire the traditional folk, uh, but Switzerland um, hasn't gone to war for anybody's sake in a long time, uh, and again, you know, we have, we have, we have, um, you know, we have uh, bodies of American soldiers all over the place, and uh, you know, I went not long ago to Cambridge, England. It's a wonderful um, cemetery maintained by the U.S. government. Um, dedicated to all the airmen lost their lives. Um, you know, that's that's part of our story. And uh, I don't know whether young people know that. Um, I went to uh, Italy uh, right at the height of the, I was there as a Fulbright professor, right at the height of the uh, um, Iraq war when it was very controversial. And uh, you know, we had just moved into our apartment. It was great shopping. And uh, uh, an elderly Italian woman came up to me and asked me if I would reach up and tell for her for something she couldn't reach. And I, I did and, and gave it a uh, Then her husband, but in English, says, um, we love America. I hadn't said I was an American. I hadn't said a word in English. And it said it in my terrible Italian, but um, but he said we we love America, and I said thank you, and I, I think he was he intuited that I was feeling some of the all the criticism getting over the Iraq really bogged down, and he said uh, I don't know what young people will tell you, but but we and he gesturing to his wife we will never forget what you did for us. Um, well, <laughs> our young people have forgotten it uh, if they ever knew it. So, um, you know, they, they, these are these are important things, and they don't just come by osmosis. They have to be fought. Um, that they have to be sort of important, come memory, but they're uh, sort of collective memory that have to absorb by being taught. By hearing the stories, um, 
So I I hope more of that can can happen. Uh, I hope we can. Um, you know, the, the, my book begins uh, with uh, uh, a uh, the epigraph. You know, the quotation at the beginning of a book. Um, it starts with a quote from John Dos Passos, and uh, I, I've told people, you know, if you don't read the book, read the epigraph because it's uh, it's so beautiful. And Dos Passos, as you probably know, you guys know this kind of. Very, very radical left is really a communist in the 20s. Uh, and, uh, you know, the time of the Sacco Vanzetti case. And he was involved in the Spanish Civil War. And at some point, I forget the details, but he he moved to the right um, for a number of facts. Uh, but um, and the, in, in, in 1941, he wrote this essay called The Uses of the Past, and I quote from that essay. And it's it's a beautiful essay, but one of the things he says that's in the epigraph is um, history is a sort of fun thing. Cosmetic, I think, is the word he used I think, during peaceful times. But in hard times, uh, history is is a lifeline. He says it's a life, you know, that, that they're, they're, I actually... I have it, I have it handy. There you go. Yeah, in times of change and danger, when there's a quicksand of fear under men's reasoning, a sense of continuity with generations gone before can stretch like a lifeline across the scary present and get us past that idiot delusion of the exceptional now that blocks good thinking. That's why in times like ours, when old institutions are caving in and being replaced by new institutions, not necessarily in accord with most men's pre preconceived hope. Political thought has to look backwards as well as forwards. I, I just think that's so, so great and so relevant to right now. People are, <laughs> I mean, they, they think this is the worst time ever in American history, that we're more divided than we've ever been. Uh, more divided than the Civil War. but. Uh, We've always had division. Uh, we've and some of them have been profound. Nineteen forty-one, when Dos Passos wrote that, the country was divided, uh, fiercely divided over whether or not to get involved. This is early forty-one. This is not after Pearl Harbor. Division disappeared. But, um, uh, uh, so we, we've had we've had very difficult, and um, uh, it does. The rest, I, I read you all the quote. The rest of the quote deals with kind of how, um, looking at the examples of the past, how uh, helpful it can be. And I think one of the things that um, my students um, need to get over is this what he calls the idiot delusion of the exceptional now, meaning that we are living in such a, a time that has no. You know, I mean, we have we all have this, you know, we and and that changes everything. Now, there's no way I can remember. Thirties or yeah, whatever. Um, we live in a totally different world, digital revolution, um, and that's crap. You know, uh, human nature 
doesn't change. Um, many things don't change. Um, we're finding out that that modern monetary theory doesn't change the nature of inflation. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, there's a, a way in which the inability to remember the past does, you know, it does cause us to repeat mistakes. But um, but more it's just that sense of connection. When, when uh, I mentioned to you guys in the warm-up that I was born in I um, used to go back in the summers uh, to visit my grandmother with my family. And this was in Charleston, Illinois. I don't know whether you, know, you probably don't have any contact with that. But uh, um, Charleston happens to be one of the places where there was a Lincoln-Douglas debate. And I was a kid, maybe seven, eight years old. I knew, I knew a little bit about Lincoln. I just remember wandering out this field of Coles County Fairgrounds and coming across this plaque that says something that this is the Lincoln Douglas debate in whatever year it was, was was whatever date it was, it was in 1858, was held here. And it it kind of, you know, blew my mind. I mean, I had this sort of vertigo, this sense of, wow, I'm standing in a place where this happened. Uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln was here, Stephen A. Douglas was here, they're proud here, they were debating you know, for the uh, and the historic momentous day. And I felt a sense of connection to them. That it's not just a cognitive thing, it's it's a sense of belonging to the same entity in which that occurred. You know, I'm still riding on the same horse. <laughs> or sailing in the same ship. Bill, it's um, it, it's a lot of like what you've said. It's just it is very poignant and just it's very matter of fact. It's it is what is going on in in the world today, and and we're seeing it. It's this is no longer under the surface in schools where you're sort of hearing about it. Um, it's happening. And now we're seeing the fruits of it. And I think that's why your book is, and that's why we wanted to have you on the show. It's like, your book is so important. Um, and what you're, what you're saying, what you've written, and it's, it comes down to, yes, you know, pulling your weight, doing what you can to sort of help right the ship um, and get us back to viewing the American story in its proper context. Um, so we want to just say thank you uh, from both of us as, you know, as a history show, uh, but for what you've, what you've um, contributed um, to the American story and its retelling. Well, thank you. It's really a pleasure. I, I'm so inspired that you guys are doing this, you know. Um, of course, I, I, I hope you're getting rich off. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. We're uh, working on it. Yeah. yeah, but, but it, it, uh, and that's, that's perfectly consistent with the, with the being a, great American but uh, but seriously no I I know uh, that this is not um, you know you could be doing other things and but this is something you love and you love history you love the subject matter um, and, and and I presume you don't only do things on American history and that's and and uh, that's that's great because you can't re can't really appreciate American history if you don't know anything about the rest of the world 
Well, Bill, thank you again so much for being on the show. We greatly enjoyed talking to you. It's I, I appreciate it. And uh, and I'm going to go down and eat some lamb. Yeah, I was going to say that yeah. lamb's not going to eat itself, man. No, I, I hope not. <laughs> We're in a different universe if that starts happening. Exactly. All right. Well, bless you guys. Universe. And uh, stay, stay, stay cool down there in Houston. We're going to do what we can. Yeah. 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 I think, right. I think I'll stay happen. warm up here. You better believe All right. it. All right. Take care, Bill. Have a good one. Bye-bye. If you get up this way, drop in and see us at Hillsdale. It's a wonderfully friendly place. People will love what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to run. The, the lamb is bagging at me. So thank you, guys. Thank you. You got it. See you later, Bill. Have God a good bless one. your enterprise. You got yeah. it. Well, I got to say, I really enjoyed that interview. And, you know, with all the things that we are watching around the country where uh, parents are, you know, going to these uh, school board meetings yeah. and, you know, because they're discovering what it is, is being what's being taught to our kids. Right. Um, I, I'm going to have to say that this book, Land of Hope, if you're homeschooling or... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I don't know. I really don't know how this is going to work. But if you're homeschooling or in some ways, you, you know, you're going to educate your kids, I think that should replace the uh, American history textbook that's being distributed right now. Yeah, I think so, too. And there is actually a teacher's guide and I think a student's guide that goes with this book, which would make it even easier for parents, especially if they're homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just a great conversation. And Bill is just great and just like just plain and simple he he loves this country and pinpoints all the reasons why you should in this book um and so i think that you know as far as book and movie recommendations go i think obviously land of hope the invitation to the great the great american story not just the american story the great american story and i think that that's that's like those words are in there for a reason the land of hope. And when, when I read the book, I was thinking it's not land of promise. Like nothing's promised to you. Nothing's going to be like, okay, this, if you come here, you will get this. You will be successful. No, it's that land of hope. Like you go there and there's always the hope that things will go well, pan out right. And look at, look at our history of, of what we've done. Yeah. We've done things that, you know, we've started off very well and, but we've had things that, you know, we needed to work out. And guess what? There was always the hope that America will make the right choice. They will make the right decision, whether that means going to war over it, or whether that means um, just doing some, some hard things. You know, you, I think that's, uh, I think there's a reason behind uh, calling it that and the great American story. So yeah, book and movie recommendation. Well, I guess now we can do the movies. Yeah. Um, now, earlier I talked about the uh, the Jonestown massacre. So now there was a there was a movie. If you want to see a movie on this, you don't want to really sit and take the time to read it. There was uh, Powers Booth, my one of my favorite actors, all time fave. Yes, I loved him. Loved him in uh, Red Dawn. So. I loved him in Tombstone. You know, I'm trying to remember where where was he in Tombstone. He's the, like the main bad guy. Oh God! What's the matter with me? He was wow. Wild Bill or Bill? Yeah, Curly Bill, Curly Bill. What's the matter with me? Huh? Well, okay, you know, because I hadn't seen that. I haven't watched it in a while. But yep, you know, I, what does that matter? I I need to watch 
I need to power this booth fan. Go yeah, on, curly go on build. with yourself. Anyway, okay. So in uh, in seventy eight in seventy eight or seventy nine, he came out. Uh, he played Jim Jones. He looks like Jim Jones. So he played Jim Jones. It was a made for TV movie called the uh, Guyana Tragedy, the story of Jim Jones. Um, I I made the unfortunate thing of purchasing a DVD off of Amazon and the quality. I mean, it looked like you know in the uh, 80s and 90s where you know people would take a video camera into a movie theater yeah kind of looks like that it's not very good quality so be careful if you buy it I- i'm just going to say maybe find it on youtube if you see it and uh, just watch it that way but so good luck finding a good copy of it don't get the cheap one that's like for five bucks because you'll mm-hmm. you'll regret it but yeah it has powers booth and it has um uh, I think it was Veronica Cartwright and not Angela. Nobody knows these people. I guess they do. She was an alien. She was the... There were two women. She in, wasn't Susan Sarandon. No, no, no. Susan Sarandon. Or whatever no, her name the, is. that Ripley. There were two women in, in the movie Alien, the original Alien. She was the other one. She plays like the wife of Jim Jones. So I think she plays the wife. But Jim yeah. Jones was an alien? No, didn't you see the movie Alien? The of one, of course I did. Yeah, okay. Was she, there were two women in that movie. Isn't that what they were waiting on? Is it an alien spaceship? No, you're thinking of another uh, revolutionary suicide. That was uh, the Hell Bop comic thing. Okay. Yeah. So, but anyway, yeah. Uh, Guy on a tragedy story of Jim Jones, starring Jim, starring uh, <laughs> Powers Booth, starring Jim Jones, starring Jim Jones, Powers Booth. So that's my that's the movie that I would uh, recommend. Yeah crazy all right thanks thanks for that uh so i did reference gettysburg earlier and gettysburg the movie or actually the series the a and e series from back in the day probably about 25 years ago somewhere in there yeah i want to say it was in the 90s early 90s really good martin sheen uh jeff daniels um tom berenger sniper mm-hmm. it's it, it is a fantastic film what's that guy with a mustache i forget a um Elliot, Sam Elliot, Sam Elliot's yeah. in there. You know yeah. that movie is based it's just so good. That movie is based off the book Killer Angels. Killer Angels, yeah, yeah which I have two copies of. Yeah, I, I read that. I only I, need one, but well, yeah. Didn't I give you one or no? You didn't. Oh, okay. Anyways, um, but yeah, but if you've book. never seen Gettysburg, check that out. Um, it is very good. You could probably purchase it somewhere uh, online. And it's, it was like a three day miniseries worth seeing. And I remember that being uh, one of the first like. TV movies I'd ever I'd ever seen. So, anyways, all right, ladies and gentlemen, well that brings our show to an end. We hope that you enjoyed it. Um, before we go, Alan's going to let you know what to do next. Next is you can well you need to go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel so that you'll get up you'll get uh, updates on our newest videos. You should get some sort of a message, but. Uh, yeah, we're, we're on YouTube, subscribe. Uh, we're on Facebook, like us. And we're on Instagram, follow us. Now, if you can't seem to find us for reasons of being shadow banned or whatever that they're doing, uh, you can find us on our very own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, so, <sighs> you hear a are you ever going to do any more writing for the Epic Times? You ever gonna yeah, put yeah. an article out there? Yeah, well, you maybe know, let people know. Hey, there's more than just one Sons of History. Well, you know, actually, I am gonna be taking a lot of days off. Uh, I have uh, several weeks of uh, paid vacation, which I'm gonna be using these next two months. Well, fantastic. 
or a month and a half actually. So you know, now that I have my mom so settled, almost gone. Huh? Yeah. yeah. I, now that gone. I have now that I have my mom settled, um, I will. Uh, I I am going to be. I'm going to try to spend some time doing the writing for the Epic Times and doing some videos for the. Sons of history. Yeah, beautiful. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that brings our show to an end. We will chat with you next week. We've got Arthur Herman on the show, and we're going to be talking about his new book, The Viking Heart. One of my favorite authors. I know that you're going to love that conversation. I'm, I'm stoked. Totally stoked about that one. So we will talk to you next week. 